Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Netflix Martyrs. We are your Netflix Martyrs. I'm Chris Mattiello, and I'm joined, as always, by Dwanit Mehta. Howdy. Rob Arecci. Good evening. And Pam, unfortunately, is not here with us today. Uh, last I heard, she was at Disney World molesting stuffed tiggers. So we are on our own this week for our film, Vibrations, a movie about how techno music can save your life. Let's start off with Five Across the Eyes, as we always do. Who would like to step up and try to describe, explain, summarize, or review this film in just five words or less? Crippled, drunk, finds techno Jesus. Very nice, very nice. I I would like to to leave us with the message that I... Uh, pulled from this movie uh, when it comes to the uh, the assembly of the the techno Jesus, so to speak, is that science can't beat a welder. All right, mine we'll talk be... about that later. Yes, we'll we'll leave some suspense for them. Not Daft Punk, just Daft. <laughs> All right, so the movie begins. We have our main character, and what was his name again? TJ. TJ. We have our main character, TJ. Tej. Tej, as some would call him. And he is an aspiring, up-and-coming rock star. He's, he's the next big thing, and he's playing the big gig at the most popular venue in town. Rob, what did you think about the music? I know you're a music guy. We've jammed together before. What did you I, I think about... I loved it. He, he was, like, going to be bigger than Huey Lewis. I mean, this, this guy was really gunning for it. He was a double threat. Not only was he an amazing guitar player, but also an amazing keyboard player as well. Um, they had a black guy in the band of corny white guys, so that always helps. I mean, their, their band was going places. And, you know, from garage band to superstardom was only a few minutes away. Now, do you think there was a big market in 1996 for, like, instrumental Bruce Springsteen ripoff bands? They were ahead of their time. They, did, they didn't know like how big they could get in the bar scene. I think they were, they were really pushing the envelope. I'm pretty sure the did. movie did take place in Jersey because he's going to Philadelphia for the, the big gig at the biggest venue in town, and he ends up in New York at one point. So I think the safe bet is that he's probably in New Jersey, which would make sense why they've got the Bruce Springsteen thing going. He even had, like, the vest, the leather, black leather vest and blue jeans combo. We meet his father early on, who, the best way I can describe him is if you've ever seen the cartoon Metalocalypse, if they did a live version, this guy is Murderface. (laughs) (laughs) He's got the mustache, he's got the gap in his teeth, he's got a big, round, goofy head, and he, he's TJ's father, the cop, and he comes in... We meet him right off the bat. Uh, they get a noise complaint to his house, and he's like, Oh, I'm getting a noise complaint at my old house. A few yo-yos weren't destined for stardom. And we set up how, uh, how big this band, TJ's band, which is never given a name, could potentially be. They were, they were called Local Band, I think. <laughs> that might have been the name of the band. And on the newspaper heading that he carries around, it's, it's Local Band, yep. set to make it big. Maybe they were being ironic with us, and they were called local bands. They I don't were, know. That's kind of they were really ahead of their time with like the ironic. Yeah, they were. They started they, the hipster craze too. <laughs> this, they they were hipsters in the nineteen ninety six. You know, uh, up until later in the movie, I actually I I kind of liked the, the dad character. I was kind of hope. I, I think I mentioned to you. I was kind of hoping that uh, the entire movie was about him. 
because he, he comes in and he's just like you know dicking around with his his uh son and his friends he's he's the cop character he's uh it starts out looking like he's going to be the stereotypical stern disapproving father character then it turns out he's kind of a nice guy yeah that could have been a good movie just watching sergeant Murderface driving around and like saving yep. cats from trees and arresting the drunk guy behind the walmart who's flashing girls when they come in just like small town local stuff yep cop dead well, but the, the beginning of this movie is is entirely just him driving around in the intro to, to, I guess, kind of set where they are in suburbia, even though that isn't where the majority of this movie takes place. It, it really seemed like the guy who made Birdemic kind of got his inspiration from this movie. Yeah, we got a good driving scene right off the bat, even though it had no relevance to the plot. If you were just coming into the movie, like you said, you would have thought it was about a, a local sheriff. And then we get, we get TJ, um, you know, the band talks about the big show, you know, we gotta get there at 8, don't be late, and between all of the the setup about how they're going to be so big and we got to get there on time well we know something terrible is going to happen tragedy incoming and at this point he goes to meet his uh girlfriend who's an intrepid reporter who tends to cover uh you know interesting stories about uh street vigilantes in new york yes, <laughs> turtle related scoops yes. turtle related scoops the girlfriend- uh, i am of course referring to the uh his girlfriend character is also the actress who plays April O'Neil in the Te- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles sequels. So there's a, a uh, I know that actor. Yes, that's uh, Paige Turco, who was April O'Neil in all three Turtles movies. She Actually, not the first. Not the first. Not the first. I had to look it up. Oh, okay. So she's, she, you, you, you could almost say she's the per man's April O'Neil. That's, of course. Of course we only get the April O'Neil from Secrets of the Ooze and Turtles in Time. I kind of think the original April O'Neil is the poor man's April O'Neil. Does anyone remember what that lady looks like? She's I, like in all those like medicine commercials nowadays. She's really? like selling Pepto Bismol. I just replaced Paige Turco into into the first Turtles movie. If you ever watched the first Turtles movie, just imagine how disappointed you could have been knowing what April O'Neil looked like in the cartoons and the comics, and then what she looked like in the first movie. It, it's it's. It was a little devastating. Yeah, it definitely yeah. was a step up in the there was no uh, There was no yellow jumpsuit anywhere in those movies. Absolutely yeah. not. I think she wore mostly gray sweaters. That was really her, her attire. For she did have the, the big feathered 90s hair, though. That's true. But that, I think that here. was just her hair. Yeah, she just walked on set ready to go. Now, it was she interesting. Is, she is probably the, one of the two characters in this movie that I don't absolutely... That I didn't loathe in, for one reason or another. Yeah, she she's one of the few characters that makes decisions that seem like they're decisions that a human would make. Yeah, pretty yeah. realistic. And she's not a bad person either. You you kind of expect knowing that Christina Applegate is going to pop up at some point and probably be a love interest to our main character, who is a heterosexual young male. You kind of imagine the first girlfriend to be like a real bitch. Like she's going to be like that hometown girlfriend that's holding him back, and he'll have to break free from her to make his big break. And, you know, to, to the credit of the, I guess, the scriptwriters and to the way that, um, you know, that actress played the character, she's really not. She's actually quite pleasant, and I did enjoy yeah. her, all of her screen time as well. Yeah, and believable. I, I feel like they start to set that up a little bit, like maybe in a first draft she was kind of the, the bitchy ex-girlfriend, because, well, TJ goes to her house for a, a pre-game throwdown uh, where she is, she is just waiting naked in bed for him, like like a good girlfriend of a rock star, I suppose. And she mentions that she's not going to be able to make the show tonight because she couldn't get off work. So I think 
maybe they were going to set that up, or maybe they just threw that expectation out there. It's like they could have made it so like she was secretly cheating on him, and in the end they're like, you know what, maybe we should just have her actually have a job. She, she really is working. Yeah, and she ended up, like you said, she was fine. She was a realistic, believable character who mm-hmm. ended up making decisions that someone in the situation she ends up in later on would probably make. But did you get the line right before TJ leaves to go and see her? When he's like, all right, guys, like, uh, we're going we're gonna to load the truck at five. But first, I got some things to take care of. And I think the drummer in the band has only one line in the whole movie. So does this have something to do with your wiener? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know he throws yeah, I, wiener. I, and I it clocked was so it. Jarred. We had our, our first dick joke at five, five minutes into the movie. Yeah, it was so like, it took me right out of the movie. And I was like, What? And I had to just watch that line a couple of times, and that was like a high point of comedy for the first act of this film, for sure. And what becomes a bit of a dark twist later on. Yeah, it's a good point. There's not a whole lot of comedy in this movie. Most of it is very unintentional. There's There's not even really a whole lot of drama in this movie, though. There's not a whole lot of anything in this movie. (laughs) It's just a series of of events in, in this guy's life. Yeah, pretty much. Well, he's he ends up waking up late to the show. Because he definitely had something to do with his wiener, just to clarify. It was all about having to do with his wiener. And here's a movie that could never happen today, because in a world with cell phones, this doesn't happen. Well, I don't know. You know, the oversleeping thing can still happen. I don't know. You have alarm clocks, cell phone alarms going off. You'll be getting texts and phone calls from his band. And here's the one part where I think... Well, she is kind of a shitty girlfriend because yeah. he wakes up and she is just gone. And yeah. I, you know, I'm sure she did have work or something, but for her to not be like, "Oh, hey, you know, make sure you don't sleep off our sex too long and miss your gig." No, no courtesy. Wake up. She just rolls <laughs> out and leaves him. She's like, yeah, "I know like- this is the biggest gig of your life, and this will probably make you a huge success as the next Bruce Springsteen." But I have to. I have to get to work. I got I got the night shift at McDonald's. I got to get out of here. And that would that would almost make sense if it was his place, but it's her place. She just sneaks out of her own apartment and leaves him naked in her bed. So, of course, he has to drive like a maniac to Philadelphia for the show. And things go wrong. Well, you know, in a, in an era without GPSs, and I, and I can understand this because sometimes to get into parts of Philly is very very difficult. And he never even really makes it that far. Uh, you know, he's got a shitty car. It barely runs. You know, he's running late. He's And you know how upset he is because he's going, shit, 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 over and over again to express his frustration at being late. There are detours. And then he comes across something that you never want to see in a movie. Which rednecks. Is, uh, which is rednecks in a red pickup truck. You know that things are going to go south from there. Your night can only get worse when you cannot escape Two rednecks drinking beers in the in the tailbed of a truck. Yeah. So I imagine they're in South Jersey at this time. Definitely yeah, South Jersey. Definitely. definitely, right? I mean, well, definitely. where else do you find rednecks in Jersey? North Jersey. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> I forgot you guys went to Railroad. <laughs> <laughs> they're a special variety. They they they're the mountain folks. They live up there. Oh boy. I think we had a couple of them working at our school. I'm almost positive. Oh, most definitely. Oh, absolutely. I think they would walk there from, from their mountain abode. But anyway, it's, it's never good. You don't want to be the guy in your little four-door that comes across a swerving pickup truck full of drunk hicks. And uh, it, unfortunately, TJ finds himself in just that scenario. 
and unfortunately, his car breaks down. He cannot buy a brake today. And they end up in this in this big abandoned, you know, construction yard in the middle of nowhere. They're now just in the middle of the woods. They're off road. You know, they've gone rogue. They're now in in this this abandoned sort of field where there are big machines and and big trouble as well. So the rednecks get out of the car and they're they just start beating the car with baseball bats. For really no, no reason. Real reason. No. I guess they got pissed off at him because he was trying to get past them, and then he managed to almost sort of get past them. And they're drunk, so of course drunk people are violent and angry, and they proceed to go way too far with this. Yeah, like, you don't obey traffic laws around here. What? Why ain't you driving drunk, boy? <laughs> if he'd been if he'd been cooperative, they just handed him his obligatory bottle and been on their way. Yeah, right. But one of them, one of them gets, and I think one of the things you're specifically not supposed to do when drunk is operate heavy machinery. But one of the rednecks gets behind the the controls of a large construction device, and I didn't really know what this construction device was, like a. It's uh, like a, a hole, hole digger. Yeah, like hole, a hole digger. Hole thingy. Like an, not really an auger, because it doesn't, like, drill. It's just like a... It was like a big post hole digger yeah. mechanical. Yeah, I guess I guess that makes the most sense, but like I, I don't know. I couldn't really tail. figure it out. I can't imagine what it would be used for in an area where it looked like they were clearing trees. Um, if maybe just to stab the fallen trees and move them out of the way. I'm not really sure. The machine gave the effect of me like a, of like a giant scorpion. If you could just imagine this big metal scorpion tail harassing you while you're in your broken down car, that's kind of the vibe that I got. You know what? You know what it's called? No, it's called a plot device. <laughs> I thought you googled the machine. Well, I'm yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's too much work. You so, got uh, you got me good. No, it's it's entirely just a plot device for the rest of this movie because. Well, D, what does it do? Well, what ends up happening is after they punch a couple of holes in the hood of his car, they put one spike through the uh, the roof of the car, and he at this point puts his hands up for some reason, I guess maybe for self-defense, and the, the pole digger ends up crushing his hands, uh, forcing them to get amputated, which we find out as he wakes up in the hospital bed with just nothing but stumps. Yeah, I think, I think Darren Aronofsky... When when doing Requiem for a Dream was really inspired by this scene, it's shot for shot remake when Jared Leto wakes up with the stubs. But I wanted to ask you guys because only at that point do the rednecks think, "Oh, hey, maybe we've gone too far." How drunk do you have to be? How many drinks in are you when, like, murder seems like a casual thing that is a realistic idea? Well, Chris, that entirely depends on your tolerance. <laughs> and what alcohol you're drinking. I mean, if it's gin. And what gin, alcohol you're drinking. There's, there's gin, a lot like of factors. Three. At which point murder becomes the best solution. Especially murder to a stranger who has done nothing to you personally. Yep. Especially murder to a guy wearing a leather vest. The wake-up was, was heartbreaking, man. I mean, you know, he comes awake and, his, of course, his two supports in his life are there. Uh, April O'Neil and his father. And the first thing he says, I believe, is that his hands hurt. And it's just like, oh, man, like, you don't have any. And he slowly realizes that he holds up the wrapped up stumps and just howls in anguish, throws his head back against the pillow, and it's just like, shit. You know, every, t- every time something bad 
happens in this guy's life. That's like the pinnacle of what he's saying. It's just shit, like in a constipated <laughs> crowd. He's That's his equivalent of, of Orlando Bloom's I'm Fine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he just keeps saying it throughout the movie to uh, let us know exactly how you feel. But in the case of Orlando Bloom, there's no irony here. He's saying, oh, shit, because he's in some shit. I mean, he's handsless. He can't even wipe when he takes a shit now. He's done. He's surprisingly casual about the whole thing. He's just like, well, no hands. He doesn't I'm- have, like, a big screaming, like, <laughs> my hands, my my... My career, my life, everything. He's just like, oh. I'm willing to blame that on the drugs. He's got to be pretty doped up right now. Yeah. I mean, but he wakes up with the reaction that you would think he would have from just missing the gig. That's true. As opposed to waking up without hands. Like, Chris is right. It's not really a very appropriate reaction to the severity of his his situation right now. That that sets a trend for the rest of this movie of inappropriate reactions to 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 things. Now, editing in this movie, if, if there's one thing about this movie that I would say is by far the worst, it's the editing, because we don't ever have a sense of time. Yeah. Like, we jump straight to him in physical therapy. It makes it seem like it's the next hour, but it has to be several days, even weeks from then. And oh, yeah. We, we never get a sense of how much time passes throughout this movie, which very shortly will lead to some hilarious cuts. But we see him with these hands, and they're basically just coat hangers with, like, skin around them, like a skin glove, because we learn that they're just this kind of bendable metal, and he can use his chest or his other hand to kind of position his hands into different shapes, whether he wants to, like, make a fist or a a claw, he has to kind of position it, and we get this physical therapy moment of him trying to, to pick up a mug... It kind of dragged at a certain point. Yeah, and, well, we don't really see him having a lot of grief over his injury. He should be completely Devastated. Broken. Yeah, this is his lifestyle. And we only really get a flash of this anger um, when April O'Neil comes over to kind of comfort him. And the dad says, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't been good. And once again, we jump from that to him being home, which has to be another couple of days, even a week. So he had to have time to work on those hands, which which I think there's a a, a more advanced technology in like the little puppets that like Tim Burton would use in A Nightmare Before Christmas. Like it's basically just these metal joints with a with a rubber glove on top. It's like a little mannequin hand, and he doesn't really get the hang of it. It's not really very. It's very awkward. Handy. His hands. They're not. They're certainly not very handy. No, he's not very handy. You know, he really could use a hand or two. <laughs> Well, the the physical therapist does mention that you know some of her patients end up at some point being able to tie their shoes or brush their own teeth. It's like that's not that's not you know such great heights. You know, she doesn't have a very good success rate. No. Some of her patients end up being able to brush their teeth. You know, and then she gives them a little hook, and she's like, "One day you'll be able to button your shirt." <laughs> and he just gets like agitated that he can't get the cup thing right on the first try. Like it's. You you would imagine that he's just like has his hands in fists inside these things as opposed to not having any hands. It's almost like a game. He's like, oh well, shit, I I can't get it. This sucks. As opposed to like my life is is dramatically changed and my career is over forever. It was probably reasonably hard for the actor to manipulate these 
prosthetics as well, I would imagine. He probably just had his fists inside of these. I bet there wasn't a whole lot of acting when it came to having difficulty with those things. Do you think it would be more realistic, you know? It's like kind of funny. Method acting. Wait, no. Method acting would be chopping off his own hands and replacing them with... <laughs> well, it's a good thing <laughs> they didn't cast Daniel Day-Lewis. That's why this. they didn't cast Daniel Day-Lewis in this role. They wanted yeah. him to come out okay. He was up for it, and they're just like, you know what? He's going to take this way too far. Now, that would have been interesting. Bionic hands at, with Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> well, D, I know you like this scene, because you were laughing pretty hard at it when April O'Neil comes over. And oh God! Yeah, she starts. Oh, the best. She starts trying to make him feel "quote unquote" normal again. She she acts as if nothing is really wrong. She's very comforting, and he's kind of this passive aggressive asshole about it. Which I mean, no one's right or wrong there. He's in a, a place where it, you know it's not. Let's go. He's he's clearly and understandably in a very dark place at this point. I mean, he's just lost both of his hands. He can't do what he he loved or his chosen profession. And April O'Neil comes over. She tries to. She's basically trying to comfort him. And the first thing she asks is, "How are you doing?" Which, in a situation like this, is is I guess an understandable question, but also kind of fucking retarded to somebody who just recently lost his hands. I think the answer for any of us if in that situation would be, "How the hell do you think I'm doing?" And then the two of them start to make out, start to get touchy-feely, and the, the scene just gets worse and worse and devolves further. Um, he, she, she reacts negatively to the sudden touch of cold plastic, and just, I don't know, this scene was supposed to be really touching, and or not touching, but like really emotional, and I, just, I was laughing the entire time. I mean, she's rightfully sh- a little startled, which, again, you know, not, not an unbelievable reaction when she's being touched by her boyfriend's fake rubber hands for the first time. She, and it's not, she's not like, oh, gross. She just kind of goes, you know, she yeah. recoils ever so slightly. And he's like, what? You know, this is my life now. And he starts freaking out. And he rips the hands off and, and throws kind of the stubs in her face. And this was my personal <laughs> favorite part of the entire movie. He starts waving his stubs around and... Kind of gets a little crude in a sexual way, like. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. No way. It's the first mm-hmm. time I took a piss, I almost busted my balls. I understand. TJ, I'm sorry. Thank God I didn't jerk off. I could have landed in the hospital again. Please, TJ. I said that I was sorry. Hey, you want the thrill of your life? God, TJ, no. Stumped? I know I am. Damn it, TJ! Stop it! No. Enough is enough. I, that had yeah. to be ad-libbed, I he think. He talks about how if uh, if he was jerking off, he would rip off his own balls or something like that. It, yeah. gets, it gets a little weird. Yeah, it's, he can't it even jerk little... off without ripping off his balls. Th- that scene like, had to be ad-libbed. He kind of holds the stump up. I expected him to have like a thing of lube on the other side. So, like, <laughs> oh, just, just, like, it's the only thing I can do with this fucking thing. Let's make it happen. And she is just repulsed. He's do holding think- a bottle of KY in his mouth. <laughs> Trying to get the cap off. He's just ready to squirt it on. He's got like the little squirt tube, like ready to like just spray it all over his his right nub, while the left one is maybe in her mouth in like some weird sexual way. I don't know. My mind went there because I'm thinking like, what is this guy really going to be able to do? You know, as as a stump UT, and and it wasn't much because she's not into that freaky shit, and she just runs away and leaves him alone under his Jimi Hendrix poster, which. I, I thought it was very well placed, and I don't know if this was deliberate. I'd like to think it is. Is that it's like that famous shot of like Jimmy, like 
at Woodstock, like running his guitar or whatever, and he's he's holding his hands up, like to his face in the poster, wow. if you noticed. And it's almost like, oh, look at Jimmy, like looking at his own hands, and then while he's like playing music at like one of the most famous concerts of all time, and here's this guy sitting directly under the poster, like thinking about the lack of his own hands, and I will never play music. I don't know, maybe I'm giving this movie too much credit, but I thought I, that was nice. It could have been like a Depeche Mode poster or like a, a Sublime poster, but it wasn't. It was this. It was this kind of hands in your face kind of image of Jimi Hendrix. No, that, yeah, I, that probably I know, was that, intentional. I can see that. Maybe that. I, I don't even remember noticing that. It's like they do a close up on it first before they pan down to his awesome curly hair, which we haven't really touched on, but I think it's worth mentioning that he has awesome, awesome rock star. He looks curly like curly. Hair. Uh, well, he looks like a he looks like a blonde carrot top though. When he's Almost. rocking, when he's rocking the curly mullet, a little bit. Yeah, his hair, his hair kept me coming back for more. Though I'm like, I want to see what he does with his hair. It was very good. But, well, it's very well groomed for for later in this movie. Well, he must have gotten the comb attachment for his his hands. <laughs> That's true. He screwed it right on the top. <laughs> the comb attachment going perfect. So go catch it, combs at once. Okay. We get another kind of strange editing moment where it jumps from April kind of storming out of the house. And again, no one's really right or wrong here. He's in a weird place. She's just trying to comfort him, and, and both go their separate ways. She storms out, and the next thing we see, well, first he has the freak out. He, um, he stumbles down the stairs in a rage into his garage and tries to play the, key, uh, the piano the keyboard. Um, with his stump hands, and obviously he can't do it very well. And so he has a pretty understandable freakout and slams the uh, slams the keyboard, just basically kind of trashes the set a bit, and then collapses in, in grief. And yes. all of a sudden we jump to what apparently from, from the narration from Cop Dad is um, a month ahead, I think? I don't know. Do, do you guys remember? Well, I... The way that it was edited, it, it seems like the fr- he freaks out and then it cuts to the dad saying, well, where is he? On the phone with one of his cop buddies, and it seems like this is that night. Yeah, it's like the, the obligatory 24-hour uh, waiting period of a missing person. Yeah, and but- you know, when, when first watching this scene, my, my first thought was like, oh, his dad is looking for the men who did this to him. Like, I didn't get what was going on for, like, the first couple minutes of this dialogue. Maybe not a couple minutes, but the first, you know, few sentences of this dialogue. Yeah. I'm, I'm listening to, to Cop Dad, and, and here I'm thinking he's going to go, like, vigilante justice for his son to avenge his fallen hands. And, again, I was disappointed when that was not the case. Sometimes when we watch these movies, because I think I know what's going to happen, and I, I, I think of things in my head that I hope are going on, and I, I'm always wrong, it seems like. I feel like this this keeps coming up as we do this more and more. I really thought he was gonna we were gonna see more of him in action, being the cop, trying to like track that I mean, you know, going on on the beat and trying to follow leads and see like, oh, someone saw a red truck swerving erratically, like and no. It's just it's he's in his dark place, his son is gone. Uh and like Chris said, you know, it could be later that night, it could be a, a month later. It, to me, it's unclear, and he's definitely not making any attempts to locate the men who, you know, took his son's hands at all. And then we get a hard cut to where he is, which is sleeping on the streets of Times Square. And he looks, I mean, we get the idea that, yeah, maybe it was a month in, in the script, but I thought it was like that night, 
And then he just wakes up on the streets of New York in full hobo mode because he looks straight up Dickensian here. He is covered in soot. He's got like a baggy army jacket. He looks like he has been living on the street forever. But he's wonderfully clean shaven, nonetheless. We get now we get a, a hobo montage, basically. We see him wandering the streets of New York, uh, drinking, mugging other homeless people. He clearly doesn't know hobo code yet. He's lucky he didn't get shanked. And eventually, he ends up kicking a door down of what seems like an abandoned building and falling asleep in a cardboard box. And yeah, he passes out in this abandoned building and wakes up to... I mean, I think this would be worse than waking up with no hands, but he wakes up to a rave in the year 1996. (laughs) And that music is fucking terrible. This movie actually takes place in purgatory at this point. From this point onwards. That would be the twist. Like, he actually died in the box the first night, and he's not quite good enough to get in heaven, so he has to live in, like, techno-purgatory for eternity until he can do, like, a hundred good deeds as, like, an angel with no hands. Makes sense. Could have been a good spinoff. Maybe, you know, for the the, uh, remake. And the rest of the movie is actually just Cop Dead going Death Wish. Well, I I assumed right away everyone was on ecstasy. I mean, this was, like, prime ecstasy time. It was 96... You know, it hadn't killed a lot of people yet. It was just kind of like a fun thing to do. And it just seemed like everyone must be on that shit. Because this music was awful. And, I, you know, I wish I had some ecstasy so I could have enjoyed hearing the music in this movie a little bit better. Because it really was pretty bad um, in the beginning. And, he, you know, when he gets up and, and there's just like pink and purple flashing lights everywhere. And just so many overalls and Dr. Seuss hats and like striped sweaters everywhere. And, like, he's walking around. He's trying to figure out what's going on. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And soon it's very clear that he's at some sort of concert. Um, you know, they have goods for sale. They're selling T-shirts. They're selling pacifiers, which I don't know if they reveal this right away. But that's a that's a key ecstasy yeah. indicator, these Definitely. pacifiers. I'm like, something's got to be going on. But then later you see that there is no drugs or alcohol allowed at the rave. And they're they're serving mango juice and various other fruit and vegetable juices to the patrons. So he stumbled upon a straight-edge rave in 96. (laughs) Yeah, by far the most unbelievable thing about this entire movie. I mean, it just just became instantly corny, and you eventually see there's just a, a long line outside. I mean, this is what... This is what is happening on this block. Like, this is what people are going there for. You know, it's it's an abandoned warehouse of some kind, and they're just really pushing, like, the new wave of, of this musical revolution. And you're supposed to feel very excited. You know, the, the movie wants you to, like, join them. The movie, I, I feel like, is sort of rallying you as the viewer, especially if you were seeing this in 96, you know, before the widespread use of the Internet, you know, before you could download music online and before, you know, YouTube and all the social networking. Maybe music like this had never occurred to you, and this movie almost wants to be, like, showing this to you for the first time. Like, oh, see see this? This is cool. Like, And this is, this is one of many 90, mid-90s, early-90s movies that throw you into a blossoming culture that even the screenwriter doesn't really know anything about it, didn't do much research, is just kind of going with it. Like, there were skateboarding movies at the time, a ton of, like, cyber thrillers 
like and video hackers, game movies. Don't hackers, that. the net. Yeah, you got the wizard, which did the same thing. Which just <laughs> yeah, kind the, of... the exact same thing. It even has a power glove. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Like your BMX movies, your your inline skate movies. These are all of that time. We was just trying to see, like, what is the what is the zeitgeist? What is the big thing that's going to really be important to the American youth generation for years to come? And um, house music, really, I don't know if that was the right one either. No, um, definitely not. But D, now we meet Christina Applegate, Kelly Bundy, yes, and D. Talk to us a little bit about about Christina Applegate's character here. What did you think about her when we first met her? Um, given the first lines she said, I wanted to instantly turn the movie off. Um, it, it just, it sounded so stereotypical flower child bullshit that it just got on my nerves. Yeah, she had to be on drugs. She uh, had to be. And we meet- well, it kind of makes sense that the staff were on drugs. Yeah. How else would you be able to listen to the music and sell merchandise? I mean, this is, like, in that time of, like, the second coming of hippies, like, in, like, the mid-90s, where, like, everyone decided to get, I mean, it kind of started with the grunge thing, and then just kind of went from there after, like, Nirvana was done for, you know, people stopped, like, rocking and just started trying to be more, like, socially conscious, man, and, like, they dreadlocks came back, you know what I mean? Like, them little round sunglasses came back, hacky sacks, and, like, parkas and, and combat boots, with all that other crap shorts like all that shit was the coolest so it's like this is kind of like riding that wave of like hippie 2.0 and like they kind of they kind of feed you a little bit of that community vibe this community spirit that like they're all there to be part of something greater than themselves and yeah and we meet we meet christina applegate here and we find out that her name is some normal name because we meet no, it's her, not. Well, we meet her oh, boss. Her real name is like right. Melissa, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. We meet her square, older, promoter, boss, slash ex-boyfriend, and he calls her by her, he calls her by her, you know, her birth name, and she's Given like, name. no, no, that's not my name anymore. I go by Anamika now. Anamika. Anamika. And, and we should point out, this, this sleazy promoter character totally looks like the poor man's Jason Alexander. Yeah, he looks like oh, if you yeah. took George Costanza and like gave him like five well, inches and a little bit more uh, hair. Honestly, I was more rem- uh, rem- uh, thinking of like Jason Alexander's character from Pretty Woman. Yeah. That, that's an odd reference to make here, but like I could totally see that character in this movie in essentially this role. Uh, don't worry about references like that. In about five minutes, I'm going to make a reference that makes you embarrassed to be on this podcast with me, but just hold on. So yeah, we have Christina Applegate, who is Anamika, and she feels bad for the hobo. So she escorts him outside. She, she probably thinks he's rolling and, and on something. Um, so she gets him outside for some fresh air. We meet her. We get the idea that she's, you know, this nice, caring, like kind of like you said, like a bleeding heart hippie, almost. Mm-hmm. And it's so... To, to borrow a phrase that Rob uses quite a bit, yes, over the top. Um, she's ridiculously caring and nice. We cut to the end of the rave. She's heading home, and two drunk guys get. And this is a, just a trend in in Netflix martyrs movies. Two guys try to get a little rapey with her. So sleazy, just yeah. the New York scummy guy. Like, hey, baby, come over here. Check out what I got in my pants. Hey. Like the pickup lines could not even really be called pickup lines. It's it's very rapey. And fortunately, 
like a homeless, handless superhero, TJ is there to save the day. This was the inspiration for Hancock. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, he comes in as the hobo with the heart of gold to try to back these two scumbags off. And again, casual murder just dropped here throughout this movie all over the place. Because these two guys just decide, eh, we're going to knife this hobo. We're gonna, he is homeless. We're going to just finish off our murder boners here and knife this hobo. And they do straight up try to stab him. Yeah. Well, that was another thing where it was like, okay, you know, clearly we're not going to lose our main character to knife violence in the first half hour of this movie. So he um, catches the knife on his stump, or, or on his prosthetic. That freaks out the, the attempted rapist enough that they run off and, and you know leave them alone from then on. They're like, rather, than, rather than figuring out that they're dealing with a crippled person and just killing him right then and there. Yeah, they realize he's got magic hands, and they just they just run. They get real scared. Though Christina Applegate is very nonplussed by this whole thing. This entire it's, scene, she's just like, no, no, this, let's not do this, let's not do this. Listen, this as, as, the, as a forefront of rave culture, this happens to her all the time. Yeah. This is clearly not her first rodeo with rapey scumbags, homeless people, or prosthetic limbs. No, no, she's just like, ah, another Friday night. This is my life. Well, and then, in in the long line of Christina Applegate's character is extremely casual here, she brings him home. Like, he's a stray like animal. A she's just like, yeah, just just stay here tonight. Whatever. She figures she already avoided guy. one rape. Why doesn't she try for avoiding two? Yeah, pretty oh. much. God damn it, dude. <laughs> Think about this, whole, this whole conversation just went somewhere horrible. But it's, it's I mean, it's kind of true. There, it was really creepy then. But then she just invites a hobo into her house. It's, and I mean, he's filthy. He's obviously not a fresh hobo. Like, this was not his... He wasn't, like, in, in his house earlier that day and was like, shit, I have to sleep on the streets tonight. Like, he's, he's ripe. Like, he's been out there for a minute. And uh, she sees nothing weird about it. And I think it was because of his hair. I mean, he had such nice hair still as a hobo. She's like, this guy can't be all that bad. Look at look at his awesome hair. Well, yeah, a lot of people at that rave left their house trying to make themselves look like shit. But he, it just came natural. Mm-hmm. He him. blended in perfectly. She, she yeah. probably was inspired. That's oh, why definitely. she brought him home. Maybe she thought he was like just really into the rave. Like yeah. she, I don't know if she ever establishes that she knew right off the bat that he was a bum until sure. like... She sees his meager belongings and has him take a bath, and the, and the water turns purple. He's so dirty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like disgustingly gray purple water. I wonder how much of that was from him being homeless and how much of that was just Jersey. Yeah, that's true. We do all have crusts. <laughs> so while he's stewing in his own filth, uh, the night goes by, and he wakes and- up to this ridiculous cast of characters that lives in this apartment. Now, what I, I don't understand is why she let him sleep in the bathtub. Yeah, because he wakes up the next morning in the bathtub, and it's it's clearly he, he didn't pass out because there's no water left in there. He just he fell asleep in an empty bathtub. He just felt so bed. safe, you know, and comforted. And there's a point where she almost tells him, you know, like get out, get out, like you got to go tonight. And then Chris, I don't know, do you remember what exactly it was that that had her have a change of heart? There was something where she goes. 
All right, you can spend the night. Uh, was it a newspaper? Was it the hands? No, no, I that's think it was later. His hands. That's later. That was the hands. It was the yeah, hands. Right. Yeah, and she's like, like her oh. seeing the rubber hand like yep. off of him. Yeah, because I remember she touches it, which is what. Oh, that's April right. That's right. So do. now she realizes too that he's not your average hobo, and that uh, that he can stay. So not only does she bring him home, makes him an, a tuna fish sandwich that he just totally ignores. I mean, it looked good to me. She even put some veggie crisps on the side. I like couple of carrots and celery for him like a nice balanced meal and it just cracked me up when she's like do you like tuna fish and i wanted to be like i've been eating my own shit for a month like of course yeah. i like tigers so kippy juicers like yeah. i will eat your garbage I, i've yep. been on the streets i'll eat anything of course i love tuna fish like it was just such a weird like scene for her to be like feeling him out like they were on a date oh do you like tuna oh i'll make you a sandwich like he would have had, he would have eaten the napkin at that point. Like he was ready to go for anything, and then of course he just doesn't even eat it. And I had a problem with that too. Well, like, that's because he just leaves the tuna sandwich. That's because it doesn't fit into the hobo food pyramid of whiskey, 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 and whiskey. <laughs> we definitely need to put a pro homeless person disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast. Ah, they're not people, and they're certainly not <laughs> listening to this. So we meet this cast of characters, and I said this in the Dracula 3000 episode. I said if I can remember the names of the characters after seeing it once, then they're maybe not well-written, but they're at least unique, maybe fleshed-out characters. And here, I can remember all of this. The, these. This is like the, uh, the cast of Friends on Acid in this apartment, basically. You've got Joey and Chandler upstairs, um, who in this are Geek and Simeon. Uh, geek is is your average you know 90s nerd slash hacker guy then we have simeon who uh for those of you who are fans of gilmore girls he is max from the first couple of seasons this guy Uh, has a career well no he was lorelei's first like romantic interest on gilmore girls which is the only place i knew him from which i didn't even remember until i looked through his imdb and yes, I do have the taste of a 14-year-old girl. I have seen most of Gilmore Girls. So Simeon is that guy. Willingly? Dressed... What's that? Willingly? Yes. Shh. Oh. Uh, so okay. Simeon is him, uh, dressed like the lead singer from Four Non Blondes. <laughs> Absolutely. That is it, man. That is it, especially when we first see him. Doesn't he have, like... Goggles on his head and like a wrap with like a feather coming down off the side and like yellow pants and a blue striped shirt. I feel like they use Simeon as as a as a, as a basically a living Ken doll. Like how much weird rave culture '90s fashion can we model on Simeon? And it was a lot. It was a hell of a lot. 1992 through '96 just threw up all over him, and he was the result. <laughs> There's constantly women coming out of his rooms and saying, like, oh, Simeon, you were great. And it's, you can't even blame the ecstasy because they're, they're waking up and still believing that he is something special. And he's just a douchebag. And downstairs we have the landlord, Zena, who is also a welder. Whatever, for some reason. It's convenient later on. And that's our cast of people in this, this strange apartment. And of Zena, course, welder princess. Z- Yes. She kind of looked a little like Lucy Lawless to me. I kept on wanting it to be her, and it was never her. <laughs> you just, you hear Zeta, and your eyes light up every single time. Yeah, like, I'm like, maybe this is, Lu-, and I'm like, no, that's not Lucy Lawless, but I want it to be. But you it's know, not. And I'm like, well, maybe in this scene it'll be her. No, it's still not her. 
You know, I've thought that in a lot of the movies we've done, like watching Elizabethtown, seeing Kirsten Dunst. I was like, why isn't this Lucy Lawless? <laughs> <laughs> when I watched Dracula 3000, I'm like, you know, Coolio is great, but Lucy Lawless would really play a much better space age yeah. TJ is quickly kicked out of the house as he tries to swipe a 20 from Christina Applegate's trap purse, which was clearly left out there. There's no way, like, the 20 just kind of rolled out of the purse. It was was homeless bait. It was absolutely homeless bait. She was testing him to see if he would, you know, appreciate her generosity and her hospitality. And uh, he reminded us all that, yeah, I'm fucking homeless. Like, when when I leave today, I still have to eat. And I, I would have done the exact same fucking thing. I would have gone through that entire purse. I would have stole from Geek and Simeon and Xena at the same time. You got nothing to lose. You're, you're at this point homeless. These people are not yet your friends. But we get a feeling that they'll soon become best pals. Yeah, you can probably get some money for a 28K modem in 1996. Hawk that shit. That's what I'm saying. Like, any other of the homeless people on the street would have gone to town in her, like, plushy pink and purple apartment. And um, the fact that you tried to take the 20 that's very clearly left out, I I think shows some great restraint for Tej. As far as she knows, he was not going to spend the night making his own sauce in that bathtub. He, <laughs> he absolutely, she should have woken up with no television, no jewelry, nothing left. And maybe no apartment. liver. I mean, I don't know how he rolls, but... She's the one who wakes up in the bathtub. So she quickly kicks him out, uh, and he's, he leaves saying, I'll pay you back. Uh, I promise, I'll, I'll pay you back. I'm not going to be like this forever. I wasn't always like this, you know. And, and it works. You see something in her eyes kind of change, where she's like super offended and, and pissed off that he would have to steal from her. And then when he tells her this wasn't always the way, that bleeding heart status definitely comes back. You can see her kind of rethink her her decision to kick this stranger, homeless person out of her house. She's like, oh, maybe he could stay the week. But no, he's gone. And uh, where does he go? Throws a coffee cup between the stumps. This is the panhandling uh, attachment. Yeah, he's, he's smart enough to try and make pity points by sticking his prosthetics, like, getting rid of his prosthetics and just presenting the stumps with an empty cup. Very, very aggressive panhandling from TJ, which makes me think that he, he may be homeless for a while. He's, he's really good at it now. And not only is he good at panhandling, he's good at stalking as well. Because yep. follows Christina Applegate to a diner, and he dumps the coffee cup full of dollars and change on the table, basically being like, see, I told you I'd pay you back. And she drops this... She has this weird, like, holier-than-thou attitude for a bleeding-heart person where she's like, well, who'd you steal it from? He's like, I didn't steal it. I, um... He said, people gave it to me. me. He said, people gave this to me. And she's like, that's the same thing. Fuck you, lady. She should try being homeless and see how it works out for her. Yeah, that did seem a little out of character. For someone who gave up her her home for a night to a to a homeless person like she willingly made him a sandwich and let him have a bath and let him sleep in the tub like he didn't break in and make himself a sandwich and in this scene she makes it seem like it's it's basically the same thing and that that was very hypocritical i, I was ashamed at uh pikachu or whatever the hell her name is at the time <laughs> pikachu <laughs> anamika there it is i was yeah. her. Well, this scene it might be my favorite moment in the film for unintentional hilarity because the the owners of the diner think he's harassing Anamika, so the large cook comes out from behind the counter and he's about to rough the hobo up and 
he drops a pot off the stove, which hits the gas line and breaks it, and it starts shooting fire out of the gas line. So, so TJ, he goes and he just puts his hand on it. Yep. Uses his prosthetic hand to snuff out the gas fire. That's not how gas fires work. No, no, his, his plastic hand would have just melted. TJ's Jesus hands, because yeah. once again, he, he does something miraculous with his hands in putting out this fire. And again, it, it gets people to just leave him alone. Because yeah. they can't imagine. He, he's like, do you, uh, do you see him? He just put his hand in the fire. He, he just put his hand in there. And, and it gives TJ the opportunity to not get his ass kicked again or stabbed or worse for the second time. And now, Rob, he does return back to the, the techno warehouse. That's and right, this- but he has a reason to. And this is, yes. what, this is the part that was lost from my mind is because Enemica ends up leaving like some awesome like home-printed T-shirts at the diner in her rush to get away from this crazy homeless man, um, ends up leaving all these T-shirts. So, you know, he can't just let her, you know, not have all her T-shirts that, you know, she needs her T-shirts. So he feels like he has to bring back her T-shirts to her. Well, now we have this weird, again, the editing is really strange here because she sees him and she has this really angry look on her face. And between the flashing lights and the jump, the, the jump cuts back and forth between her really angry face, and he starts to have, like, a seizure from the lights and the music and, I guess, not having enough money for alcohol in the last three hours. And he starts kind of freaking out and falling on the ground, but it cuts back to her, who's just still staring him down. And it's like we're getting this weird, like, techno carry moment where she's, like, killing him with, with her mind. <laughs> it's not at all what's happening. The editing is just really bad in this movie. And that's- yeah, it's, it's a weird scene. And then I believe, once again, he wakes up in Anamika's house. Going through severe withdrawal, which apparently includes paranoia and mild schizophrenia. Based on what he's, like, mumbling and babbling about as he goes through withdrawal, and she tries to comfort him. Actually, I believe that's a side effect of homelessness. (laughs) It's just what happens. He had adult-onset homelessness. (laughs) (laughs) It required medication at that point. Is that recognized by the dsm 4 well, now the whole, the whole weird friends crew of this apartment basically accepts him and brings him into the fold. And we get this little montage of him sobering up, and he, he smashes a, a whiskey bottle down. Like, he's really going to dedicate himself to cleaning up. And then, while they're putting up flyers in a, I believe, like a music shop, he has this idea. And he oh, yeah. rushes to the yeah. geek with it. And D, you're, you're the resident scientist here, so why don't you take this? So he sees a player piano. You know, he watches as the, it, it's wired up to play this little tune automatically. He gets the idea of seeing if his nerd friend and his welder friend can wire up um, a pair of prosthetic hands that can actually do a similar thing. And that's exactly what they do. There's another montage of them um, setting up and wiring up a pair of hands that, when pre recorded, will play a particular set of, of movements that he can then position over a keyboard to actually play some sound. Which, I don't think, I'm, I'm almost certain they didn't have the technology to actually do back then, but it was still pretty freaking cool. Yeah, I mean, if the geek managed to put this together, then he was also probably working for Google within the next five years. Like, yep. the, the geek is a billionaire, like, ten years after this movie happens. I mean, it could have been instant. This could have been instantly marketable to the to the amputee market, you know what I mean? Like I said in my Five Across the Eyes, you know, science has got nothing on a welder. Like, 
well, and a geek, but it's not, you know, eight across the eyes, or I would have said and a geek, but it's really the two of them coming together to, to put science and medicine up to the point in 1996 of where it had evolved to just put them to shame. You know, in our apartment, we will come up with something infinitely more efficient and more awesome looking uh, than your little, you know, mannequin hands, which is the best that you can do science. We did forget one little thing from the scene before. The reason he connects the player piano with these hands that can help him play keyboards is because Simeon introduces him to techno music in perhaps oh, the one best of scene the, in the movie. Perhaps one of the greatest scenes ever put to film. And Chris, this, this is, one's all yours. This yeah, is, Chris, I think you owe it to yourself to ride us through the, the, the ebb and flow of this masterful <laughs> scene. Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this whole scene for you folks. It's a little long, but trust me, it's worth it. Happy. This is where it all happens. So... Do you know anything about techno? No. Watch. See, the idea is to get the vibe going. Then you maintain the vibe with a transducing face and the right lights. See, we're primal, heading for cosmic. Just when you think we're in galactic ecstasy, we go acid. It's hardcore neutronic mutilation. Now we get serious. See, we're going on a psychotically calibrated, electronically executed, digitally compressed, hustling screening journey through sonic grooviness. The world is coming to an end, but we don't care. Because we're moon-tan nocturnal, bino-consuming animals drifting easy through friendly space, an analog trance, nothing can doom this groove. We're controlling the vibe, manipulating the madness, sucking in the energy, our cosmic nerve endings are throwing us on a moon, what to do, where to go, and then we know, then time, let's go! So that, what you've just heard is the song that he plays for him. And, God, that dialogue, the way he explains it and the way he loves adjectives is just fucking beautiful. The, some of the things he says, like, how, how are they all not on ecstasy 24 hours a day? Because they are just vibing to this and they are eating they're, up. They're high pressure. on techno, Chris. We're, we're primal, headed towards cosmic. It's just, oh, it's so good. And that scene is really the thing that makes this movie wonderful because it takes itself so seriously. There's no, among none of the characters, is there any comedy or lightheartedness in the scene. It's so serious. And they take the things he says so serious that it's baffling, yet beautiful. Yeah, it makes you wonder how Every single one of the people in this scene are having like a life-changing, like religious spiritual experience even the geek is finding his rhythm and is kind of like you know i'm I'm doing the dance now this is not a video cast but you if you can imagine me sort of lurching forward on the couch in in a semi-rhythmic state even the geek is dancing because of that and because of seeing the player piano tj puts these two things together and decides to become you know this power gloved 
techno player. You gotta love it. It's so bad. They try to get him a spot on the show, but the the asshole promoter, you know, he says, what am I, a charity now? I'm not going to give your crippled friend a spot on the show. So they fool him. They have TJ come up in this full, like, Centennial Man costume. He's fully, like, C-3PO'd out. It's this dark black chrome costume. So he does the techno show. The crowd eats it up. And the promoter decides to add him to the tour that they're putting on. They're doing a little, like, Northeast, East Coast, 10-date techno tour. And Cyberstorm, which is the name that he chooses. I assume that's the first name he came up with, because he certainly didn't. I I think that was Geek's screen name earlier in the movie, was Cyberstorm. (laughs) His his well character was Cyberstorm. But again, with no explanation whatsoever, he's now tuned in to the rave culture thanks to the one and only Simeon. Yep. And they go on tour and we get yet another kind of montage of him playing and dancing and Christina Applegate and him falling in love. They're they're definitely an item now. We even get a brief glimpse of like a sex scene and she's not afraid of his robot hands. God, yeah. This is pretty much the end of the movie half with half an hour left to go. Because they start going on tour, they they sell. There's a montage of them selling out at all these rave places, and you know, selling a ton of merch. And he's he's moving out the card. And, yeah, he's, yeah, and and he's he, and there's a few hints during the travel segments of this montage that he's still thinking about his life and what he's going to do. You know, once they're done with this tour, and finally the tour takes them with with no real indication that this is happening to his hometown. Something that he forgets to mention to everybody that he's currently hanging out with. The movie comes full circle. Yeah, I mean, that little town in Jersey where he was born and bred is just the hotbed of musical experience. Playing at the Coliseum, or whatever they call it, which is like a mid-sized, at best, club. I believe it's called the hottest venue in town. It is definitely (laughs) It's just the venue. As we can learn by his newspaper clipping that he still kept with him while while he was homeless... Which I actually thought was a little interesting if you realize that this guy has presumably given up on his dreams and he still keeps this little newspaper clipping with him at all times as yeah. his little secret hope how that one times, day. How many times do you think he had to weigh the options of either keeping that with him as a memento of his old life or wiping his ass with it? <laughs> Not shown in this movie are all the fight scenes where he fought off an army of homeless people who needed to use it. They saw the uh, paper and they almost... He had to probably use his hands to stop many knife attacks. Yep. Now, there's really no more conflict left in this movie. The The whole conflict is resolved once he stops drinking and being a hobo. He gets back in touch with his dad. And they have this reunion scene. Completely unbelievable. Yeah, why the dad is like it's great to see you now we don't get like i've said before the editing does not give us a great idea of how much time has passed but this has to be at least a year right oh yeah easily it's been a while and i mean if we can just talk real quick about how his dad is is reintroduced to him is is uh i don't think we touched on this is that the geek has an amazing piece of musical equipment in his possession um you know that he has created as like a a super subwoofer i guess would be a way to describe it you know it's it's this it's this box that 
just blasts music to Decibels Unknown, which actually in the very beginning, before we're introduced to all the friends, um, it's it's like <laughs> it's about to make the apartment crumble. I mean, he's Simeon is playing techno through this box, and like things are popping off the walls, like the ground is shaking, like people are running for their lives. And it's all because Simeon's having a little fun with geeks, like, outdoor, you know, this is for outdoor venues only, like, it's this crazy, right? It's like this crazy subwoofer mm-hmm. thing that he makes that eventually, you know, assists our hero, Tej in his quest to become Cyberstorm, because he can use it to really amp up his sound and, and take us from primal to cosmic. That thing was kind of weird. But he, of course, has it with him. When he returns home and, and when he realizes his big gig is back in his hometown, you know, we kind of get like this shout out to the beginning of the movie where he's using it in like this weird little hotel room, right? To like bring his dad to him by blasting the music through Geek's subwoofer thing. Faking a noise complaint, basically. Classic TJ. Classic TJ. And the dad is so happy to see him. Doesn't immediately just belt him. Is that a realistic reaction? I don't know. I mean, I've never run away from home, but I feel like at this point, everyone has to think he's dead. How could they not just be so angry when they when he turns up all casual? This happens again, and I think it's even worse the next time, because while he's sound-checking at, at the biggest venue in town, April O'Neil comes back, and they have their reunion, and she's not even mad at him. Yeah, they they actually part on very amicable terms. There's a there's a brief scene of like romantic tension between the Christina Applegate's character and TJ because of the fact that she tipped April O'Neil off that they were back in town. And I don't know, they they part ways amicably. She's clearly moved on and is dating somebody else. And that's her only contribution for the rest of this movie. And, you know, even though Christina Applegate's character, Anamika, even though Anamika calls the ex-girlfriend, she's still angry at him when the ex-girlfriend shows up until he drops the smoothest line. He's the past. I want you to be my future. I really love you. You can tell that the homelessness didn't set in all the way because he still has access in his mind to like awesome lines like that. And it totally works. Like the next thing you know, they have a dinner date and all is well with the world until they walk outside to go to dinner. The five guys who are running security for this uh, show happen to be the same five rednecks that ran him off the road. So clearly they were, they were probably all heading to the same show at the beginning of this movie and none of them made it and got fired. I like to actually, now that you mentioned that, I like to imagine them getting to the venue. And, and wondering where the, the band show, is. Yeah, having the show be canceled because CJ didn't show up because they crushed his hands. And them, like, not getting paid for the night and being all pissed off and wondering where that asshole lead singer is. Not realizing that he's the guy that they left in the middle of a field with no hands. Yeah. Alternately, the show got canceled because he never showed up. He was that late. So they went out and hunted him down. <laughs> That's, yeah, they might have been his yeah. biggest fans. They were, yeah, they were disgruntled fans pulling a, a misery. We they were pulling a dime bag Daryl on him. They were like, "How yeah. dare you abandon the show? We're gonna kill you." We didn't get our comped Paps Blue Ribbon tonight, you motherfucker. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Oh, dear. And so he lets her go off without him to set up an elaborate revenge trap. Which is the point when I thought this movie was about to get really dark for the last ten minutes of the movie and was thoroughly disappointed. Yeah. Because all that ends up happening is he tricks them into going downstairs and um, basically having this, like, Pabst Blue Ribbon buffet. And he traps them in there with just the stereotypical board across the door and sets up the magic subwoofer indoors, which Geek has told them is not supposed to be used indoors. So that when he starts his performance and plays, he can switch it on and basically destroy them. It's like a Home Alone style <laughs> trap. It's like <laughs> you can't imagine. Yeah, that was elaborate. Them like walking into the room and finding the doors locked uh, and and having them blast their ears out. Uh, this is something that happens to the Sticky Bandits. <laughs> like, not necessarily, you know, somebody in this movie, but it was almost played for slapstick at first. Because they're like, oh, we can't get out of here. And then it's like, oh, well, fuck it. You know, there's, there's free beer and sandwiches. And so they're chilling until Cyberstorm takes the stage. And like D said, you know, he's got it hooked up to, like, the air vents, you know, in a very, like, Batman villain style to, like, play this deadly music through the vents, which is going to destroy them. His techno show is at full swing. I mean, he is Cyberstorming so hard. And the crowd is loving it, and he is just, like, bopping along to the music. I loved his dance moves. <laughs> and then his little conscience kicks in and says, you know what? I should spare them. Like, maybe I shouldn't make my attackers' heads explode, which we're so close to that point. I was hoping that would happen. I thought we were going to get a full scanners moment where they just all popped, and it was going to get yep. really dark for a second. And the edit, again, going back to the editing, the editing is really intense. It keeps the music keeps building and building and building and it keeps flashing back and forth between them and Payne and him rocking out with occasional flashes of like Christina Applegate and the crowd. And it's kind of intense for like a minute and you really do think he is going to murder these guys with techno. I was hoping it would happen. I yeah, was... it was totally plausible. Like the the movie has made you believe that this could happen. Like this could really happen right now. Yeah. And if it I, did, I get the feeling that he only didn't let it happen because he didn't want to traumatize his girlfriend at their rave slash hookup. And it would have been the perfect crime. Like, nobody could have ever pinned that crime on Cyberstorm. And that's pretty much the end of the movie, actually. His dad gets the... Well, he does the, the most retarded-looking charades ever to his dad to signal that the people that are standing there stumbling around disoriented and wearing security t-shirts are the people who ran him over. Which, I still don't get how he really quite got that across. He's just kind of gesturing at his hands and then gesturing at them. It was like the bond between a father and son, D. You know, it was very strong. I I guess so. It doesn't even end on a freeze frame. This is the kind of movie that needed to end on a freeze frame. (laughs) Them holding him up, you know, and everyone going, yeah! I expected him to kind of like walk out of the venue and pump his fist like Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club. Mm -hmm. No, we just get a fade out, and that's that's vibrations. Netflix or Notflix? Is this something that they should go to YouTube and check out? This is pretty much an emphatic recommendation. I, I think everyone should watch this movie, and you've said it a few times in, in the lead-up to this. I am very surprised now, also, that this does not have a bigger following. You said it. I think this this is the first movie on the Netflix Martyrs, I'm going to say. Watch it. Definitely watch it. It's really worth seeing how ridiculous it gets while at the same time playing it completely straight-faced. It is not a good movie, 
but it is a great bad movie. Definitely recommended. I, I'm going to have to chime in and, and agree with the two of you. I think we have our first unanimous decision. Um, again, I, I don't know what Pam would say. I'm not sure if she's seen this or maybe down the line she'll take a look. I, I imagine she would enjoy it. I don't think there was anything bad enough to make you dislike it. I mean, it's it's not really long enough that you could say you ruined your night. I mean, if you started early enough, you could you could watch another movie afterwards. Um, as a matter of fact, since this was on YouTube and I typed in the word vibrations to find it because I couldn't find Chris's link, the thing that started directly afterwards was a very strange documentary about a about a Jamaican reggae band called something about the Good Vibrations who all had polio. And we're, and we're doing reggae music in, like, the late 80s. And I watched that shit for, like, an hour. So let me just say, I recommend Vibrations not only for the film, but for the reggae polio documentary that follows if you, go, if you do a search for <laughs> Vibrations on YouTube. Yeah, this is definitely our first unanimous recommendation. Yeah. This we've, had a unanim- we've had two unanimous non-recommendations. Exactly. So seek it out. You know, you're not going to find it easily. If if only to recapture Christina Applegate in her Kelly Bundy days, just do it. It's worth it. And ten years from now, when this movie starts getting big on the midnight circuit, and they're playing it right alongside The Room and Manos, they're going to have us to thank for this. Yep. We're going to inspire so someone tell ourselves. Yeah, people are going to be dressing up like Cyberstorm and uh, Four Non Blonde Simeon. It's gonna be it's gonna be a good time at those midnight shows in a couple of years. All right, well that was vibrations. Now next week's episode, you guys might remember this movie. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you didn't. It was from uh, you know it was from that batch of post scream ironic kind of self aware horror movies. We're gonna watch Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Uh, no. I remember it. Never saw it. Starring Katie Holmes and I believe this will be our first Oscar award winner. To show up on the podcast, Helen Mirren. Wait a minute, you mean Alyssa Milano was never nominated for an Oscar? Uh, I don't think she was. Wait a minute, you mean Coolio was never nominated for an Oscar? He should have been. You know, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if he was up for an Oscar for Gangster's Paradise. Like, have, wait a minute. Into that. Yeah. <laughs> you mean that Trish Stratus was never nominated for a Canadian Oscar? No, you're confusing that with the Slammy Award for Diva of the Year. Oh, yeah. Uh, Easy mistake to make. All right, that's our show. Remember, netflixmartyrs.blogspot.com for past episodes. You can follow us on iTunes, Twitter, at NetflixMartyrs. Shoot us an email at netflixmartyrs.gmail.com. We will see you next week. Sign our suckers. Adios. Adios.